This is Community Pulse, your grassroots report on the coronavirus situation here in mid-Missouri. It is 9 a.m. on Tuesday, March 31st, the final day of what for many of us has felt like a very long month. It's hard to believe that less than 30 days ago, our attention was captured by a completely different, all-encompassing news story, that of Super Tuesday in the presidential primaries, which, in short order, has been sidelined by news of the growing pandemic. Just 30 days ago, only two COVID-19 deaths were reported in the country, and now that number is over 2,400. As many of us begin to enter into the second or third week of isolation and social distancing, it can be difficult to pull ourselves away from social media and the grim news that is all around us. But on today's Community Pulse, we're going to focus on a slightly more uplifting subject, that of antigen and antibody tests for COVID-19 which are being rapidly developed and can provide vital information that will help us fight the spread of the virus. Joining me by phone, as usual, to tell us more about these tests and why they are important is Dr. Elizabeth Alleman, local family physician and host of Your Health Matters. Good morning, Elizabeth. Good morning, Tim. Thank you again, and thank you for tuning in. Um, I wanted to start again with some numbers. Um, so in case people aren't tuning in all the time to look at the numbers, uh, around the world, uh, 790,000 documented cases. So we're close to a million cases, 38,000 deaths, and 166,000 people recovered. Um, and those are the people we're going to focus on a little bit, a little bit later. Um, in the United States, 164,000 with, uh, with, of the disease with 3,000 uh, deaths and 48,000 recovered. Uh, in Missouri, we have 1,000 cases now, uh, over, a little bit over 1,000, with uh, 14 deaths. And in Boone County, we have 60 cases with one death. Um, so uh, then I also wanted to take just a minute because it seems that social media, at least my news feed, is blowing up with people saying, oh, finally, we have a clear recommendation that everybody should wear masks. And now everybody's going out to purchase masks and purchase fabric and sew masks and, um, and being really mad that the recommendation is changing. And when I read through this and read through the nuances of it, I don't think the recommendations have significantly changed. Um, and so I'm just going to go through, sometimes what happens is the public health message needs to be very simple because we want the same public health message to go to people regardless of their reading level, of their socioeconomic status. We want to be um, so as um, equal as we can in sending out messages. So they're often very simplified. And I remember a friend of mine one time says, when you simplify some things too much, they stop being true. So if you want the subtleties, and you could go to CDC or World Health Organization websites and look on their um, recommendations for professionals, and those usually are for health professionals, and those usually are a little bit more nuanced. And the, the truth is about masks is that they're in very short supply in the United States. They're in short supply around the world. And the demand has markedly escalated. And the N95 masks, those little white ones that people often use when they're mowing the lawn or sanding, are the ones that are the most helpful in protecting uh, healthcare practitioners when they're doing high-risk things like um, an intubation or suctioning somebody's lungs where there's a lot of um, aerosols and droplets into the room. And we think those really high 
uh, viral load exposures are um, increasing people's risk for serious illness. And we're not saying that healthcare practitioners as people are more important than everybody else. But we all know that if we want to, if we get sick and we get seriously sick, we want to have a team there that can work for us. And having our healthcare system collapse is a way that increases mortality for everybody. So the the masks that are manufactured to be used in hospitals are in very short supply, and it just makes sense as a survival strategy for all of us for those to be prioritized to healthcare practitioners. So if you've bought some, you've ordered some, you have some, you're storing some, and you uh, want to make a, a real contribution to the way healthcare happens and the survival of our community, then those should be donated to a hospital or a healthcare practitioner um, that you know of. Um, and then the question about cloth masks, they are not as good at uh, filtering as the other masks, and yet they do offer some protection, and they also increase your risk in this way. I keep talking to people individually and hearing people talk on social media and in public and publishing things that it's okay to go out and go to the store as long as you have a mask on. And I really want people to stay out of stores. I want people to stay in their homes or out of doors. So I'm recommending that no one go into a building that they don't live in and don't invite somebody not in your household to into your home and keep all of your people who live in your household only in that building. And I know there are some people who can't do that, but if everybody who could would, then we would really help with flattening the curve. So uh, curbside pickup and delivery are what the cool kids are doing for everything, even your pet food and your hardware purchases. Call the store and ask them to bring it out to you. And pay by a credit card or PayPal or something. So that's so. But now what we're recognizing is we're finally willing to say to people that yes, a mask, the cloth mask you can make at home, or a scarf or a bandana do offer some protection. And if you have to do a thing that's dangerous, then then that's probably uh, better than doing it without a mask. But I'd rather you not do it than do it and wear the mask. So that's that's the brief thing about masks. Um, and the other thing is please have some patience and forgiveness for us. Our understanding of what's going on and what's the best approach changes every day as the the virus changes, as the our understanding of it changes, and as our resources do. I, I'm very sorry for the up. Uh, the upset in my um, sound. Uh, someone is texting me. If you, if it's you and you're listening, please stop texting me so I can talk. Um, <laughs> well, thank you so much and, for providing clarity on masks. I know the way information yeah. proliferates these days, it's it's hard to know if, if we're, what we're getting is really the right public health information. Yeah, and honestly, Tim, I don't know either. It's possible I'm going to say a different thing tomorrow because mm-hmm. our understanding is evolving, and um, I would like to have everybody get a little bit of grace about that. Um, including the people who are receiving and trying to interpret these recommendations. Mm -hmm. Um, And so now I want to talk a little bit about um, testing. So right now the test we have um, that we're using in the United States is a nasal swab, and what we're looking for is actual virus particles in um, in the swab. And so what we're looking for is the presence of the RNA, the genetic material. And um, in general, what we talk about is we're looking for the technical term is, I'm not sure this is actually accurate, but I'm going to use it anyway, that we're looking for the antigen. And an antigen is a foreign substance that when it enters the body of an organism creates an antibody response. So that's a specific immune response to that particular thing. So that's what a, a vaccine is. It's a 
the injection of an antigen, and we um, are anticipating that the body will will create a specific antibody to that um, response to that antigen. And those things fit together. You may have remembered from high school biology that they fit together like a lock and a key. Um, and uh, so they're very specific, and one antibody is only good for that antigen. There is a little bit of cross-reactivity, but it's very rare. So, um, the, uh, so what is being developed right now is a, uh, a test for the antibody to COVID-19 or for the novel coronavirus, SARS-2. Um, and so that's actually the name of the virus. COVID is the name of the disease. It's got that word D in it, and the D in COVID stands for disease. So we're looking for the SARS-2 coronavirus um, antibody. So that is the body. What we're looking to see is if, if your body has seen that virus. And the antibodies are going to begin to appear in your body fairly quickly within the first few days, but they're going to increase in quantity and concentration over probably 6 to 12 weeks. And then they will persist for some time and begin to decline, but theoretically you'll always, your body will always have the memory of having made that one time and will be able to make it better the next time. And that's why this is a global pandemic that's sickening so many people is because it is novel. None of us have seen it before. None of our bodies have made the antibody to it. And so all we have is the nonspecific immune responses, which is why most people are surviving as those work. But the specific antibody works better. And this test, uh, this antibody test, was approved by the FDA on Friday. It is being used in some other countries, and it will become more available over time. Um, it is being used in some research and uh, private exempt statuses, so we have just a teeny bit of experience with it. But one of the exciting things is it will help us identify the people who have already had the COVID disease and may be immune so it will help people understand, oh, well, maybe I am now a person who could do a particular frontline job with more safety, and we could allow someone who is not yet exposed to retreat to their home. Um, it may be a person who could do the shopping for their neighbors. If they're a healthcare worker, they might be the one that would do the high-risk intubation procedures. And the other, so, and, and it would also help us um, evaluate some of the people who had an illness early in March when testing was not available and or even now when testing is still so limited for the actual nasal swab, the testing for the virus that you shed in the first days of the illness, um, to see whether, whether what they had was COVID or whether they had something else. And it would help them understand whether they were one of the people who is now immune or whether they had the other thing that seemed to have been going around that looked very much like COVID, but was testing, testing negative with the swab. So the vast majority of the symptomatic people I've been a part of swabbing have tested negative um, to the swab. And so um, 
Many people had a remarkable illness in January, February, March of this year, and many of them are wondering if they had COVID. Some of them are very certain that they did. And I would be so delighted if we could document that that's what they had and they're now immune and they could be helpful or help them understand that they are not immune and um, shouldn't, shouldn't put themselves and their families and communities at risk by going out. So, so I'm wondering, did I sure. did I cover that well, Tim? What did I leave out? Yeah. So so while we're all uh, waiting for a, a vaccine to be developed, which may yeah. take uh, up to say 12 or 18 months, this is something that right. is able to be developed more rapidly and is another tool in our toolkit that we can use to help uh, fight the virus in different ways, or it can inform us in certain ways so that healthcare workers can be working more safely, potentially, or Tell us right. a little bit more about how we can use this information. Um, so the other way it can be used, and this is going to be one of those nuanced things that may be confusing, mm-hmm. but I'm going to say, I'm going to list, I'm going to trust my listeners to, to understand it. And that is that in the early days of the illness, um, the swab, it turns out, is not 100%. No test is 100% sensitive. Um, and so there is some question whether we're missing some cases by telling people, you know what, we didn't find it in your nose. Um, and they're thinking, oh, well, then I didn't have it. When there may, that may have a false negativity rate of as much as 30%. So if we tested 100 people with the disease, 70 of them would get a positive, yep, we found it in your nose reaction, response, and 30 would get a, we didn't find it, and they are now falsely reassured. So that's a real shortcoming of the test we have. It's best we've gotten, and I'm using it as enthusiastically as I can. But the um, antibody test may be helpful in people who have a really suspicious set of symptoms and who are testing negative for the swab, that they may have enough antibodies early in the course of the illness. And that may be part of why their test is negative is that their body's already eliminating the virus from their nose. But it it may help us help them to, to, to know whether they have it or not. So, well, if you get a negative test on the antibodies, it may just be too early. And if we test you later, um, we might get a positive response. So both of these tests can be wrong if we have the timing wrong. Um, but again, they're, they use together, they may give us a little bit more um, uh, accuracy in um, detecting the, the people who are actually sick. And yeah, the, the antibody test is not going to actually not going to get anybody immune, but it will identify immune people. And again, we don't know for sure if having antibodies is 100% protection. It probably isn't. There's nothing that's 100% protection. Mm-hmm. But it, um, it may help us identify a, um, a resource of people who are immune. Okay. And I, I assume these tests will be in short supply early on, just like many of the COVID tests? Yeah, the... The other thing is, Tim, there are a lot of companies who are trying to bring these onto market, and each company is going to have its own strengths and weaknesses. So some people may be aware that the first test, the first swabs we did in Colombia got sent to a company called LabCorp, and it took you know two weeks to get some of those results back. Um, so uh, some of the tests may be more accurate than others. Some of them may be easier to use. Some of them may actually be ones that people can test at home, that they can order the test. It arrives in a kit. They stick their finger. They put some blood on a 
on something um, and send it back, and then their blood gets tested in another lab. So that way we can do this testing bypassing the healthcare system that's already a little bit overwhelmed. Um, and so then you're not using up the staff in the hospital to draw the blood or to process the specimen. That, that can all be done in other places where people can be also away from being exposed to the patient while they gather it. So some of these things are really exciting. I also just heard this morning that maybe um, we have clearance to have people swab their noses at home, which would be another. That's exciting. That is very exciting because when you go in to get your uh, nose swabbed, even in a drive-through center, those people are very appropriately using personal protective equipment to collect your sample. And a lot of people, when you stick something up their nose, they sneeze, which is a really high-risk exposure. So we could save on some of the personal protective equipment, and we could also let those people with great skills do other things while they are um, while while we um, process samples ourselves. So I think that things are going to start to be available in the next week or so. Again, I'm not promising, but I'm hoping that those will be available soon, and we'll be reporting on that here as soon as I know something specific. Right, and uh, we're also thankful for um, you just providing some clarity on the, these complex subjects, and I know we're still learning as we go, but I feel like we're all getting a really great lesson in epidemiology this month. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's very interesting. One of the college students in my home is beginning to study class logarithmic uh, uh, graphing and charting and mm -hmm. how that's different than arithmetic, and we had a very interesting discussion about that. So we are... We're all homeschooling today and becoming a little bit better public health people. Um, so tomorrow, uh, Sarah Williams is going to join me again, and we're going to um, talk a little bit deeper about the whole mask issue. So if you're interested in that, um, you can tune in tomorrow. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Elizabeth. Thank you, Tim. Bye. Mm -hmm. And that's it for today's Community Pulse. Once again, we were speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Alleman, local family physician and host of Your Health Matters, which airs every Wednesday at 6 p.m. on KOPN. You can catch Community Pulse here at 9 a.m. every weekday morning. And if you have a message or perhaps a question that you would like to share, uh, we would love to hear from you. The number to call to leave us a message or a question is 573 874 11 Three nine. Uh, we really appreciate uh, listener comments and feedback and questions, and uh, we do this because we are here as a service to the community, so we would love to hear from you. That number again to call us and leave a message is 573-874-1139. If you prefer to email that question, you can email me at gm at kopn.org. Thanks for listening to today's Community Pulse. Coming up next is Background Briefing.